conductive wire And you were so electric I had no say when you came so near And just passed right through me Hey everyone, welcome to Geekdom is Back. We have a brand new guest, Danny Ryan, is joining us for the first time today. She has been on my other podcast, Chat Cemetery. I cannot tell you if her episode has aired just yet because I do not have my handy dandy spreadsheet in front of me. But today we are talking all about Hereditary, which is a movie I watched not in theaters, but I did watch it recently enough to where I was like, okay, you know what? I need to talk about this with someone. But Danny, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm super excited to talk about Hereditary because this movie is something. That is one way to describe it. And I'm completely in agreement with you on that. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's one that just like you, you said, when I finished it, I was like, I need to talk to somebody about this, like, besides my therapist. <laughs> Yeah, so why don't we just go ahead and dive right on in and start with the casting. I think the big thing for me was the fact that I didn't really know too many of the names in this movie. I had heard of Toni Collette, couldn't tell you what I've seen her in before, but she's a name that you know, has been around for quite some time. And then Anne Dowd was the one I was more familiar with just from watching The Leftovers. And I was like, oh, okay. I'm into this. <laughs> I recognized her from The Handmaid's Tale. And when she showed up, I was like, Aunt Lydia, what are you doing here? You look so different. So similar. Um, although Gabriel Byrne, uh, who plays Steve, the dad, he uh, has been in a million and five things. So I recognized him immediately. I was like, what are you doing here? And he's he's wonderful in this. So I love this cast. Yeah, I'm sure I have seen him in something. I just can't pinpoint it off the top of my head because he seems like he's one of those guys who might not necessarily be the star in whatever he's in, but plays a significant enough role to where you're like, oh, okay, this guy, he's been around. Exactly. He he's a really excellent character actor and he's yeah, he if you go to IMDP, like his credits just go on for a million years. Like he's very, very prolific. So I'm sure you've seen him in something somewhere. I will see him in Maniac when I get around to watching that, that's for sure. There you go. Oh, that's a trip. Yeah, one of those things on my never-ending list of things to watch. But with Hereditary, I had a bunch of people on my Twitter feed, some friends, telling me, hey, this is a movie you should probably go watch. Not necessarily directly telling me, but just telling the world in general that it's a thing people should watch. So I was like, all right, it's on Amazon. We are going to watch this. It's going to happen. And it did, and I am very thankful that it did. But casting aside, you know, I don't think there's too terribly much to say about the cast other than they were all pretty fantastic in this. Yeah, pretty much everybody is just excellent. Um, the highlight for me is actually Alex Wolf, who plays the son, Peter. Uh, he's, I don't think I've seen him in anything before, but. I feel like he has one of the hardest performances to carry off and that he doesn't have a lot of yelling or screaming or big acting to do. He just has to convey things through his face and his eyes in particular. And I felt like, especially for a young actor, he just did a phenomenal job. Everybody does a great job. There's not a single bad performance in this movie. Totally agree with you on that. And as far as the pacing of the film goes, you know, this movie was a little over two hours long. If you count the credits and everything, really. It was only about two hours because credits take forever, as we know, because more and more people 
wind up working on movies, especially ones that have special effects and everything like that, which this has some, not a ton, I would say, but it has enough to where you're like, oh, okay, they just did that with Tony Collette. All right, okay, we're we're going there. <laughs> Hereditary has some, it has some pretty crazy effects. Um, there are definitely some effects that are, they're really well done. Uh, There's from the understated stuff to the huge stuff. Uh, and, and a lot of it's practical, which I really like. So yeah. we don't have a lot of goofy CG uh, stuff going on. With Hereditary, I, I like it because the pacing is really interesting for a horror film. It's a very slow burn. Yeah. And you have these big moments where it deals with very human emotions, but also with things that horror movies don't generally touch on as hard. Um, like grief, there's a whole lot of meditation on grief. There's a lot of meditation on sort of the scars our parents leave on us. And it, it's really interesting because this is dealing with a lot of psychology and drama. And then throughout all of that tension that's building through that, through these human characters that like none of the supernatural stuff even plays into it, then we get hard hits of horror. And then it's kind of chill again and it lets us breathe and lets us think about all this, you know, impact of the horror. And then we get hit with more horror and it's just brilliantly paced as far as knowing when to play its hand and knowing when to let sort of things build and let the tension rise. And then it has just an insane finale. Right. It has a much different type of emotional impact than say a slasher movie would you know a slasher movie is typically meant to have a bunch of jump scares not always we've seen some that have been done very well over the years that weren't just made for the gore factor or those jump scares and in this it's hitting these hard emotional beats to where even when you get a moment to breathe outside of the horrific events that are happening, you're just sort of wallowing in all of these emotions that the characters are feeling. And they do a very nice job of having that just sort of ooze out of the screen. Everything Peter is feeling, you're feeling right along with him, but maybe not as much as he's feeling it. But you're just like, oh, man, I really feel for this kid. And his mom is being creepy and like trying to kill him in his sleep. What is going on? Well, what's great about it is that it focuses on how the the characters handle the horror of the situation. Instead of us just, you know, looking at these characters and going, oh, God, I hope they live. Or in the case of a slasher, like you don't care about those characters. We don't really get to see through their eyes. We don't get to experience things with them. Whereas with Hereditary, we are very much supposed to experience this through these characters. The way that... Everything is shown with the accident, the fact that the camera never leaves Peter, except for like one or two quick cuts. And those cuts are Peter's viewpoint. It's what he sees, like, literally. That's incredible filmmaking. And and to have that not look away from him until the final reveal of what's happened in the accident. And that continues throughout the movie where the focus is just on the characters' faces and it's on their eyes and it's on how they're dealing with the horror. And so it makes it much more tangible. And it's terrifying. Like, I actually did a rewatch of this, and I watched it with a friend who hadn't seen it. And he commented on it. He was like, this is 
so horrifying because I I feel what these characters are feeling. And instead, it's not like a normal horror movie where I'm rooting one way or the other or whatever. He goes, I'm uncomfortable and I feel unsafe myself. The pacing and the cinematography really go hand in hand with this film because the way it is shot lends itself so well to just telling the story in a specific way that it's hard not to notice. Like you said, when these things happen, you get a lot of Peter's point of view, especially that first accident with Charlie. And we just get sort of this split second view of what is happening to Charlie, but they do it in such a way to where you're just baffled by it. You're like, wait, did I just see that? Is that really what just happened right now? It's like three frames, maybe. I mean, it's so quick that, and it's dark, and it's there's just no way. I mean, going back and watching it a second time, I was like, oh, I see it. I see exactly what happened. But that first viewing, I was just like, what happened? What's he? I don't see anything. You know, whatever. So that reveal of Charlie and and what's happened to her was so so horrifying. And the way that we use, that the audio is used too. That's the thing. The cinematography and the audio are both used brilliantly in this. It's what we see, but it's also what we don't see. We don't see Tony Collette's character, Annie, finding Charlie in the car. We just hear it. Right. And we see Peter's face, you know, so we, we get both emotions through her screaming and his face. We know exactly what happened and we know exactly how they both feel about it, but we don't have to see the actual thing. And then we're confronted with the violence of it. It's that much more shocking. No, this movie is shot brilliantly and edited and the sound design and just everything is brilliant. Um, as far as the cinematography goes, my favorite little thing is that since Annie builds models, she builds miniatures um, for museums. She's an artist. And she has several that are of uh, things that have happened in the movie or things that, like that, there's a model of the house, things like that. Uh, they also use a lot of tilt-shift photography of actual locations. So there's actual shots of the house in the woods from a crane or a helicopter or whatever, but they've used tilt shifts so it looks like a model. And that's a really, really neat little thing they did with perspective that, like, nothing feels quite real and it's very unsettling. I always love those kind of shots where you have this model of something and they really blend it in with the real thing. It's like, oh, okay, I see what you're going for here. And like you said, because she makes all of these models, that's something that is pretty easy to incorporate into the film, especially when she starts making the model of what happened to Charlie. Exactly. She starts making the model of the accident and she's got the model of the house. So she's, you know, it's really easy for them to do scene transitions by going into the model of the house and then having that turn into that room in the house. There's some really brilliant stuff there. And the between that, you know, cinematography and the editing and then you've also got the sound design thing because Charlie makes a very distinct noise. She clicks her tongue. Mm -hmm. And after she's gone, that sort of becomes the haunting sound, that, that tongue click. And we don't know whether it's actually a ghost doing it or whether, you know, it's just 
the something that's in their heads because their daughter, their sister is, you know, gone and they they can't handle it. That's what's interesting about this movie is up until the climax, up until things go really, really haywire, this movie never really goes into supernatural territory. It, it's always, is this ghosts or is this just PTSD? Right. On that note, though, let's dive into the thick of the story, basically, because the accident with Charlie isn't even the peak of this movie, necessarily. There's so much that goes on in here. And because of that pacing, how it's split up, you sort of get these three crazy things, I think, that happen. You have the accident with Charlie, and then you have Ann Dowd's character, Joan, coming into Annie's life. And that sort of takes this very weird and interesting turn. And then you have that big, massive ending that is a little out there. But in a way, it is something that kind of just stands on its own, even though they've done some building up to it throughout the movie. There's definitely building up to it. It's one of those things when you watch it the second time, you catch all these little tiny things that you're like, oh, I didn't even think of that the first time. I didn't even notice that the first time. And the second time, you're just like, oh, there it is. It's like if you go back and watch The Sixth Sense, you notice that there's red every single time there's a ghost. And you're like, oh, well, duh. Or, you know, that like people don't look directly at Bruce Willis. It's the same kind of thing. Um, With this, there's all these little teeny tiny hints towards what the ending is that when you watch it a second time you're like oh my god that's brilliant like there's really good lead up to it but is in a single viewing i could see how the ending comes out of nowhere and you're just like wait what um so the the movie is basically it's tony collette is annie her husband steve played by gabriel byrne their kids peter and charlie um they are all dealing with the death of Annie's mother, who was sort of a scary old lady. (laughs) Um, Just like all the pictures of her. I'm just like, you just look mean. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, She just looks so mean. But uh, she dies. She dies in Annie's house. And they have a funeral for her. Charlie's really sad because she really loved her grandma. And that's kind of where the movie starts. And the first big thing that happens is that... Charlie goes with Peter to a party. Charlie doesn't really want to go. Peter doesn't want to take her, but Annie is just, she's, you know, grieving. She's cranky. She just wants Charlie out of the house. So Charlie goes, well, Charlie has a peanut allergy, (laughs) eats a brownie with peanuts in it. Peter is trying to get her to the hospital. Right. She rolls down the window, reaches, you know, is out of the window gasping for air and... Peter swerves to avoid roadkill and hits a telephone pole with Charlie, basically. And we don't see what happens. We I mean, we do. You see you see the impact, and it's very, very brief. Um, in fact, I remember thinking, oh, maybe, maybe she's okay. <laughs> Not likely. <laughs> maybe. Maybe because we only saw that brief impact. Maybe she's okay. Um, but, yeah, she's – and then we stay with Peter. He drives home. Um and uh, the next morning, he's still laying in bed, and his mom goes and finds Charlie, and Charlie is very dead. Um, and then it cuts to her severed head on the side of the road, <laughs> which is honestly the nastiest thing I've seen in cinema in a hot minute. And yeah. like 
gross out gags are kind of one of my favorite things. Like I love watching really gory, disgusting, messed up movies. And this just threw me. I was not expecting that at all. It almost reminded me of the moment in Breaking Bad where they have Danny Trejo's head just on a turtle. On a turtle. And it just kind of goes by and you're like, okay, that's a thing they really just did, wasn't it? And with they this, you can kind of see the bugs getting to it and everything. And you're like, you know, how, how has no one noticed this yet? No, no one caught this in? Really? No one? Yeah, her head's covered in ants and um, her jaw is dislocated and linked to one side. It's a really gross, um, it's not an animatronic because it doesn't move. It's just a really gross gag. It's a really, really good um, effect, you know, and it's, you can tell it's practical. You can tell they made a head and put it on the side of the road and probably covered it in honey for the ants to eat, chew on. Um, and it's just nasty. And, yeah. and so from there, we deal with the aftermath of Charlie's death and Peter sort of blaming himself for it and Annie blaming him for it. And it's not great when you blame your own son for your daughter's death. Even when he already clearly feels really bad about it. But it's not like he could have predicted that there would be roadkill and that Charlie would be hanging her head out the window like a dog. You know, he probably thought at first that she just rolled down the window to get some air, but she's literally hanging like halfway out the car. And it's oh, like, she is, what yeah. are you doing? <laughs> Well, and in fact, that's why he yells for her. He's like, Charlie, what are you... Like, he yells, get in the car, basically get back in the car. He's like, Charlie, what are you doing? And he turns to look at her, and that's why he doesn't see the deer. Right. And that's why he ends up swerving. So it's just... A, it's it's an accident. And so he's just so upset about it, and uh, Annie's being really psycho at this point. Like, she's... It, Tony Collette's performance is just incredible. I mean, it's it's hard because you can't really blame her <laughs> because everything she's been through I'm like okay I'd be I'd be probably a raving psycho too but at the same time I'm like lay off the kid man um and then so her poor husband Steve is caught in the middle of it and trying to make things okay in his family again and and so we have like a good chunk of the movie is just this family dealing with this loss and then and then Ann Dowd's character shows up and things start getting creepy again. Yeah, yeah, definitely. One quick note about Steve, though. It's like he's the only one who is being somewhat reasonable while still grieving in his own way. He's actually the one who's acting kind of the most normal about the situation, given what happened. He's like, okay, you know, we lost Charlie, but we do still have another kid. Right. We we are still a family. Right. I think that's something that happens with families who lose a kid if they have multiple. It's like they get so overcome with grief about losing the one child that the others are kind of like, hi, we're still here. I know this sucks, but, you know, we're still a family. It's not like this was a only child or something like that, which as an only child, I have no idea what it feels like to have siblings, but you're more inclined to speak about that. Well, I mean, I can speak about my um, uncle passed away when I was a kid and my mom has talked about it to me. It's, it, it's definitely that, like my grandma for years, hyper-focused on my uncle that was gone, just like completely that was it. Like, and her, her kids, yeah, they did feel neglected for a little bit. And then now she's gotten a lot better, thank goodness. But I think everybody does that for a short amount of time that if you lose a child, it's just 
devastating in a way that nothing else is. Right. And and so I've witnessed that through her and I've witnessed it through, you know, other other situations. And grief is a crazy, crazy thing. And that's what really haunts this family initially is grief. And then Annie goes and meets Joan, who and is uh, Ann Dowd. And she, uh, Joan tells her that she has a way to fix things, that she can fix her grief. They meet at grief counseling and then go from there. Uh, and Joan just keeps, like, magically showing up at places, which after about the third time she just happened to be at the same place as Annie, <laughs> I was like, okay, okay, no, she's up no, to something. you are being creepy. <laughs> I was like, no, no, this isn't coincidence. This is now you're being creepy. Now it's starting to turn into stalker territory. But she plays the character so well. She's so good. She's so warm and charming and just like has big mama bear energy. Um, She just you just want to go to her and be like, make me chicken soup and give me a hug. And she's great. Uh, She's absolutely great, which is why the turn is so creepy. Yeah, and you have all of these things that come together with Joan, too. You find out that she knew Annie's mother, and that's kind of why she ended up seeking her out. It wasn't this, oh, we're both in grief counseling, and let's just get together. It was very targeted. Exactly. It was It was Joan hunting down Annie because she needed to control Annie and coerce Annie on her mother's instructions. Like, it's crazy. It's um, very Rosemary's baby. Like, that's kind of the direction it takes for a little bit there. And yeah, so Joan tells Annie about this, like, seance where she's able to talk to her dead son and she shows her and the cup moves across the table. And so it freaks Annie out. But she goes home and tries to contact Charlie and she channels Charlie and Charlie possesses her. And that's sort of the second scary peak of the movie for me is you've got the Charlie's accident and then you've got Charlie possessing her mother and going, mommy, mommy, what's wrong? Why is everybody afraid? Like that is so unnerving. Absolutely. I think this movie just does such a great job of showing how everyone deals with their emotions on their own terms, too. There's clearly something going on with Joan. And she knows exactly what to say to Annie to get her to do what she wants, despite all of the grief that she's feeling. She makes Annie feel like she can talk to someone about it because she doesn't feel that way at home. And I think just that manipulation is done so well. The manipulative aspect of Joan and the way that she plays Annie like a fiddle is just absolutely incredible because she uses all kinds of reverse psychology all kinds of like just implanting little ideas all this kind of stuff to get Annie to do the things that she basically needs her to do in order to in order to do what the basically leads up to the end of the movie which is they're trying to summon Charlie's spirit back and put it into Peter's body um, because they worship a demon. It's a cult of witches that the, the grandma, the dead grandmother led, Annie's mom, and that they are trying to summon an ancient demon of a king of hell, Paimon, who was born into Charlie's body, and they're going to fix that and put her, her now, her spirit into Peter's body. And the way that's revealed is just 
absolutely insane. It's just in imagery, like, it's just crazy. There's just, there's no way to explain how it ramps up because it just goes from zero to a hundred in about a minute. Yeah, I can't speak highly enough about this movie because it's one of those things where, as you know, I've been slowly getting more and more into movies in general, but specific- specifically horror, especially with diving into all of the Stephen King stuff, which is something, to say the least. Yeah. And there is a lot of it. So when I can sort of have time to go and find things like Hereditary or even just hang out with the new Halloween movie or something like that. It's like, okay, you know, I am really enjoying where these kind of movies are going. They aren't horror films just for the sake of being horror films and trying to get people to scream, which there's a good chance that this movie does that especially with certain moments. But for the most part, this is a big lesson in grief and how horrific things can happen to everyday people. Absolutely. And it's it's about a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, it's about grief. It's the whole witches and all that. I mean, it's hereditary. It's about what your parents do to you and what's in your blood and what you can't control about your genetics or your your uh, upbringing or any of those things. I mean, it's, it's so brilliant. And I think there's been a lot of really good horror doing that. Um, I think especially like 20, 2018 was the year of horror getting in its feelings because you had this, you had Haunting of Hill House, the Mike Flanagan uh, miniseries on Netflix, which is also a meditation on grief. Each episode and each kid is a different stage of grief. I mean, it's brilliant. Um, you had Annihilation, which is existential cosmic horror about what it is to lose part of yourself and, and to lose your sense of identity, which is just, that's big thinky horror. Um, there's been some really cool direction towards horror that's not just about scares, but is also about really disturbing the heck out of you in a way that stays with you a lot longer than, you know, paranormal activity style jump scares. Um, Which I love because that's something that's been really common in foreign horror for a long time, especially like French. Oh my goodness. French horror is all about making you just existentially depressed. (laughs) Um, Especially the work, the French New Extreme movement, like Irreversible and Martyrs and Frontiers, High Tension. Those movies, I think, really paved the way for this movement towards sort of that existential and, and emotional horror. And I'm all for it. I'm super excited to see where it goes. I think stuff like this, um, and even stuff that's like not supernatural, that's just really, really good horror that also has emotion to it. Stuff like um, Sonia's Green Room, where it's just... Yes, I just watched that recently, too. Oh my goodness. that That's one of my favorite horror movies of the past, like, decade. Um, just, I mean, and it's like one of those weird, like right on the edge of horror, like it's a siege movie, but it's, it's horror to me. It's also very realistic horror as well. (laughs) Very realistic horror, definitely, but it's so good. And I'm just, I'm glad that horror is starting to explore all these different avenues again, and that horror is going a little mainstream in terms of popularity, but that it's not going mainstream in terms of trying to please all white audiences. Um, 
And that's just kind of nice. It's nice that we're having a little horror renaissance right now. And uh, I'm enjoying it. And I'm I'm glad that movies like Hereditary exist. I cannot wait to see what Ari Aster does next. Uh, Midsummer looks like all we've seen is a picture and read a description. And I'm already like, all right, where's my movie ticket? Take my money. I'm, I'm there. Because... Uh, you're doing Swedish folklore horror next. Perfect. That's amazing. Yeah. And I think with movies like Hereditary, even the new Halloween, like I said, and especially a movie like Get Out or A Quiet Place, the horror genre is just so expansive. But when a lot of people still think about that word, they're like, oh, okay, we're going to be watching something like the Jason movies. Friday the 13th or Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, those classic, classic just franchises that blew up in the 70s, 80s era and have lived on. And even though Halloween is probably technically considered a slasher film, especially the ones in between the first and the most recent ones. I have not I seen agree. them, yeah. but I have heard enough about each of them to where I'm like, yeah, you know, I really like the first one and I really like the new one. And I don't know if I am going to get to the ones in between anytime soon. I know there are some worth watching, but there are a lot. <laughs> there are. Yeah. Three, three is worth checking out, but that's Three is worth checking out, and then H2O is worth checking out, but like only as an oddity and to giggle about. As far- <laughs> I mean, there's some other good ones. I have not seen all of them, so I can't speak to that, and I don't want to, because I know some of them, like I know Halloween 6 is beloved by some folks, and I just, I have not seen them, so I can't right. testify to that. But uh, yeah, I, I like slashers, but it's the same thing when I talk to my family, and I'm like, oh yeah, I write, I talk about horror movies, or I write about horror movies, and they're like, oh yeah, you like Freddy and Jason? And I'm like, not usually. I'm not really into <laughs> slashers. I'm not. That's never been my thing. I've always been very into sort of fringe horror, emotional horror, foreign horror, um, whatever. And so they're like, oh, okay, like what then? And I'm like, oh, I don't know, like um, Joe Spinell's Maniac or, you know, French New Extreme films or Japanese horror. And they're like, oh, like The Ring? I'm like, sure. Because... People just sort of only think of what shows up in their theaters, you know, in their multiplexes. And so the fact that this kind of stuff is now showing up in multiplexes and the fact that everybody has Netflix and Hulu and whatever, and they're getting really quality stuff through those outlets as well, like Haunting of Hill House through Netflix, which is just so, so very good. Um, I think it's a really good new direction. And I hope that more and more people start falling in love with horror because I think it's I think it's a great way to tell stories and it's a great way to make people get down in their emotions and just be willing to feel things. I think the two greatest genres for that are comedy and horror. I think they're two sides of the same coin and um, we need to respect both of them a little bit more. Uh, They can be brilliant as well as very, very silly. I mean, there's still always going to be a place for goofy comedies, you know, with uh, poop and fart jokes. And there's always going to be a place for horror movies that are just slasher splat fests. But we have to also acknowledge that there is an art to some of these and they can be brilliant. Especially when it comes to award season, which we are yep hitting the tail end of right now, I would say, you know, we've had a bunch of the big award shows happen already. But one of the things you notice is that it's all these drama films, really, that are getting these big nods and everything. And obviously, Get Out changed that at least a little bit. But, you know, 
clearly we both loved hereditary and it's like okay so where is there a place for these kinds of movies you know i really think something like this could be nominated for major major awards but you know whether or not it would win is another story because that's a whole other issue especially with the academy and everything like that but i think as more and more people start going to the theaters and going to these movies and i've mentioned this before specifically with a quiet place how that mid-level budget movie really needs to just come back because a lot of people went to see a quiet place it wasn't making marvel money but nothing is you know except for star wars which is still it's all disney disney has all the money we can accept that and we can still make good movies outside of that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the mid-budget movie does need to come back and I think genre is the place for that to happen with whether it's comedy or horror or uh, sci-fi is a little harder to do on a medium budget. Uh so we're going to that one that one unfortunately is harder. Yeah. Um but I think I think I agree that um Hereditary a Quiet Place um, there there have been so many great mid-budget, I mean, even outside of horror, like, look at Eighth Grade, look yes. at blind, blind Spotting, look at... A24 is killing it. Yeah, anything A24 touches, I'm just like, oh, thank you for giving this to us. Thank you. Thank you, A24. Yeah, it's just, it's it's good that we are getting such a plethora of art films and that they're out there, but I wish they got a little bit more mainstream attention. And, and awards attention, too. Uh, I really, I spent the whole Oscar, like, not the whole Oscars, because Olivia Coleman won, and that was delightful. Yes. But, but I spent most of the Oscars just very annoyed, just sitting there going, <laughs> blind, blind spotting should have been nominated for this award, and oh, well, Spike Lee should have won that, and oh, this, like, I just spent the whole thing just being mad, because it was such a boring set of selections, and just kind of done with it. Like, where was Mandy's nomination for best score? That score is ridiculous. Um, it just, it's lame. It's a popularity contest. I'm over it. Yeah. (laughs) I am very happy, though, that things like Shudder are starting to exist. And I have yet to sign up. It's on my list of things to do. But it's one of those things where I'm like, okay, I need to have time before wanting to sign up because I am currently reading Stephen King's book, The Talisman, and it's about close to 800 pages. So Mm -hmm. I was like, all right, I'll get through this. And then I'll see what I have time for. And so far, it hasn't been much. But with horror in specific, I think Blumhouse is really heading in the right direction with a lot of the things that they want to do, even if they are tackling big franchises like Halloween. I think they are sort of the go-to studio or the studio to look at for how you can change the landscape for horror movies. But I'm just really excited for, you know, things like A Quiet Place, Hereditary, and those kinds of movies to keep coming out. But, you know, this little tangent aside here, which was still relevant, so not quite a tangent, but, you know, I do want to get back to the movie and talk about that ending before we wrap this up, because you cannot talk about Hereditary without talking about that wild ending. Without talking about... uh our our good friend the demon <laughs> yeah paimon so yeah the ending is it's completely nuts um annie becomes sort of possessed i guess by yes. her her mother um or by the 
spirit of this evil. Or, I mean, it's it's never clearly um, delineated who she's been taken over by, as far as I could tell. But she starts, like, crawling around the ceiling like a vampire in the Underworld movies. Just creeping out of the shadows. <laughs> yeah, it is very, very scary. And she, uh, after Annie burns uh, Charlie's book, Steve bursts into flames. And uh, and then Peter gets chased by his mom, now as like a spider demon, and uh, they end up in the treehouse. And in the treehouse are all of the members of the cult, and they are all worshipping this giant statue that has Charlie's severed head on it. And, uh, and oh wait, that's actually, that's bef- that's after Annie cuts her own head off. Um, Annie flies up to the ceiling and then cuts her own head off with, like, razor wire. Um, and it's just nasty. Yeah, wild things are happening in this ending. <laughs> yeah, like, it's it's one of those things that's, like, you, do, you sort of forget what order things happen in because it's also so nuts. So much, you, too. You're just, like, the only thing I felt like that this and Suspiria both just had completely bug nuts endings. Um, because the Suspiria remake does the same thing where it's like the whole last 20 minutes. You're just like, what is happening? Oh my God. Uh, and I loved both. So I don't know what that says about me, (laughs) but, uh, yeah. So she, you end up with two, uh, headless corpses, essentially bowing to this statue with Charlie's head on it. Then you also have all the followers in various states of undress bowing to it and, Joan is among them, and she explains to Peter, Peter, quote unquote, um, what's going on. And we find out that Peter is no longer Peter. Charlie is now in Peter's body, and Charlie is Paimon, one of the kings of hell. And they've been trying to summon him there, and now they're going to try and, like, you know, just do evil witchy demon stuff. Uh, And that's how the movie ends, is with them putting Charlie slash Paimon into Peter's body and realizing like, all right, this is what they wanted. The bad guys win, <laughs> which for a horror movie isn't super unusual, but it is definitely discomforting in this one. With this ending too, I feel like if you didn't pay too close attention to the movie, it might throw you for a loop. At first I was like, wait, what's going on here? And then I was thinking back and I was like, okay, they hinted at these things. And I was texting my friend who told me to watch the movie and he was like, did you catch this? I was like, oh, that makes so much more sense now. So like you said, you had the chance to watch it again. I did not do that. But I imagine if I were to go through it again, this ending would hit me before it actually did the first time I watched it. The ending the second time is totally different than the first time. The whole movie is different the second time. Um, I enjoyed it a lot more the second time, actually, because I was so much less uncomfortable because I wasn't, you know, tense about, oh, God, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? It's like, okay, I know what's going to happen. This is this is fine. I'm prepared for this. You're still not totally prepared for it. It still is just like, oh, God, that's her head. Um, but you catch a lot more little things. Uh, there's a part in the beginning where... Charlie is talking to her mom after the funeral and and they're talking about grandma and she says, oh, you were always her favorite. And Charlie says, she wanted me to be a boy. She wanted me to be a boy. And then at the end, when 
Joan is talking to Charlie and Peter's body, she says, we corrected your previous incorrect female body. We put you in the right body now. And it's like, there's this whole, there's so many little tiny hints like that throughout the movie that like, I just kept picking them up right and left. And I kept like kind of giggling a little bit when I catch them. <laughs> and my friend that was watching it had never seen it. So he would get looking over at me like, what? And I was like, nothing, nothing. You're giggling about something. I know. I can't tell you those spoilers. <laughs> and it, so that was the whole movie. And it was, it was really funny how many little tiny hints are just peppered throughout the film. So I recommend anybody who's seen it, even if it didn't totally work for you the first time, especially the ending. I know the ending threw a lot of people through a loop. If it didn't 100% work for you the first time, but you, you're willing to give it a second chance, I'm telling you that second viewing is way better um, and way less uh, horrifying. And, and the ending actually, it feels appropriate. Uh, whereas the first time you're just like, wait, what? What just yeah. happened? <laughs> that was how I reacted. But then yeah. sitting with it for a little bit, I was like, okay. I think I can wrap my head around this now because it's one of those movies where after the first time you watch it, you just need to go sit by yourself for a little bit and be like, what did I just see? Yeah, this and the Suspiria remake, both of those. And I watched both of those within like the same week. So I was just like, okay, (laughs) I'm just not okay in, in the head now at all. And my poor husband was like, you need to not. And then I watched Suspiria a second time. And he's like, you really need to not. I was like, I just, I just have to figure out this ending. And he's like, don't watch Hereditary again. I was like, okay, I'll wait. So I waited until we did this episode. So I was good. But yeah, Hereditary is great. It's not for everybody because it is very intense. It's kind of extreme in places. And it's dealing with some very touchy subject matter that I imagine um, folks who have, you know, certain kinds of grief might not handle so well. Uh, But if you like scary movies and if you like movies with really incredible acting, cinematography, sound direction, etc., etc., this movie is made brilliantly, uh, check it out for sure. I wholeheartedly second everything you just said. So I think that's a perfect (laughs) note to end this on. And Danny, thank you so much for coming on to talk about this. I know you will be back for plenty more episodes in the future of both this and Chat Cemetery, which I greatly look forward to. Absolutely. It's always a blast talking with you. Thank you for having me and uh, hail Paimon. (laughs) Of course. And to our listeners, you can Follow the podcast on Twitter at Geekdom Pod. Welcome to Geekdom on Instagram. You can rate and review it wherever you are listening to podcasts. If it's iTunes, Google, we have both up there. And as always, thank you all for listening and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day.